Einstein. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you're new here, welcome. If you're new for uh, tuning in, live stream, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. A few years ago, Oprah was interviewing this celebrity pastor during this, this program she calls Super Soul Sunday, the Super Soul Sunday special. And during this segment, she would ask these questions about faith, about God, about spirituality, and she'd invite these guests to come in and kind of be a sort of spiritual advisor. Spiritual advisor sharing answers to these really quick questions that she would ask. And the setting was a summer evening. They sat at this small little outdoor picnic table probably cost more than my, a month of my rent. It was very expensive looking. They sat on this balcony where the sun is setting. Oprah's wearing this purple shawl and the pastor in like a casual polo and khakis with no socks. This is Oprah's super soul special, no socks needed. The setting oozed luxurious spirituality. It was just all over, and Oprah then asks the question, define God, to which the pastor quickly replied, like a song you hear in another room, you're trying to listen to, you keep opening the doors and the windows so you can hear more of it and let others hear that same song, and I thought to myself, that is so amazingly creative, I just don't know what that means. What? What does that mean? And after every question was answered, I began to be more and more confused as to what exactly was being said. The Super Soul special was kind of a confusing special. But over over time, what I kept hearing was a vague answer, was a vague notion of something that concerned me, and it was this. It was that God is out there while we are right here. And if I can create all of the right circumstances, my feelings, if I can kind of create the right setting, if I have the certain right needs, if I can make those needs even bigger, if I can make them stronger, then those things, what I do, will determine God's involvement. I don't have to act. I only have to be. I have to be spiritual. To be spiritual is simply to exist, to go surfing, to do the fun things that I like to do. And if I need God who is out there, he will meet me here. And I realize within these eloquent words that and amidst all the soft cushions, the, the, the beautiful balcony, and the khakis with no socks, I realized that there were spiritual advisors who were teaching that this God of the Bible was one, was distant. When we need him, we can call on him, and then he'll come. Two, that strength and success are the marks of the spirituality. And three... That God is not great. The person is. God simply comes when we need him to. But friends, the Bible is filled with stories of strength and weaknesses, of faith and unbelief, of overwhelming obstacles and unimaginable unimaginable victories where small acts of obedience are met by a great God who bring forth dramatic results. The stories that we find in the scriptures are people opening up their weaknesses, giving their raw materials of life, and God meeting them where they are at, lifting them up into unimaginable victories, unimaginable and beautiful Moments of communion with this great, powerful, powerful God who is the creator of the universe. And in our passage this morning, we have that kind of story. 
1 Samuel chapter 14, we're invited to see these two men. These two men, Jonathan and his armor bearer. We don't even know the other guy's name. We just know what he did. So that's what we're going to call him is the armor bearer. These two men whose circumstances in every single regard could be defined as weakness. Could be defined as weakness and yet the dynamic power of faithful confidence, of resilient courage and compelling camaraderie shows that the presence of God is so close and is abundantly more powerful and more great than anyone can ever imagine. God is not distant, but he is present and available in every situation. And as Christ's followers, we are called to step out in confident faith, to walk in courage, to join together in camaraderie. And so this morning, I wanna, I'm going to keep kind of weaving in this equation I'll be saying throughout the, throughout the sermon, it's this. One small act of obedience plus a great God equals dramatic results. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we can come together, that we can worship you as a church. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. Lord, I pray that you would grow us. Lord, I pray that you would further sink in the truth into our hearts that in our weakness, you are strong. In our weakness, in our limitations, you come near and you bring us into your power and through your son, Jesus, you equip us for everything that we need. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So let's set the scene a little bit because this, this morning we're covering about a chapter and a half. So it's quite, quite a lot. So I want to give you a little bit of a background. Last week in chapter 13, Pastor Andrew, he was sharing about Saul's failure, right, of not waiting for Samuel to make this burnt offering and doing it himself. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was a, a big dramatic kind of turn in 1 Samuel. It's the moment where we start to see, based off of Saul's failure, now it's going to be this kind of downward spiral of his um, it, it is internal and this external motive, right? We start to see that Saul's going to break down more and more and more. But it's because Saul blew it, right? His failure to obey God's commands, it resulted in Saul disqualifying himself as the king of Israel. And although he's king now, the setting's changed, right? The tide is, is turned. It's the beginning of that downward spiral. God has expressed to Saul through Samuel that there is another king coming, a king that is after God's own heart, that a king is coming who is not going to be doing the things that Saul is, is done. And so what, what happens now is we go from that scene, that moment of failure, we're told that Saul takes all of Israel's 600 soldiers to the furthest end of the battle in Gibeah. Now you might be saying, Mark, wait, there were 3,000 of them. Yes, there were. Good eye, Bible scholar. Yes, there were 3,000. So what happened to the others? Remember, they ran away. They hid in toilets. It was not a very good moment. It was not a, not a pleasing time for Israel. 3,000 of the soldiers, there was just thousands of them disbanded, and all that's left is 600 men with Saul. And what do they do? Do they say, no, we're going to go fight these guys anyway? No. No, we're going to the furthest end of the country. We're going to the farthest end of the place, and we're going to just kind of sit tight, right? Now, of course, these soldiers, they would go and they would fight the battles if Saul would have told them to. But as we see, the reason why they're in Gibeah is because Saul wants to be in Gibeah. 
Now what happens then is that while we have Israel that's clumped together over here in Gibeah, we have the Philistines are moving more and more and or closer and closer and closer. And in between the Philistines and the Israelites is a very small little narrow gateway surrounded by these cliff sides. And that's the scene that's painted for us is we have the Philistines who, have as, who are as numerous as sand on the seashore moving closer and closer to a small is group of Israelites who are over here. And then what happens is the Philistines started breaking into garrisons, into different divisions. And our passage tells us they broke into three divisions and then they started taking over different areas. Michmash was one of them. And so our scene this morning is the Israelites over here, the Philistines coming in, Israelites are still over there, Philistines are coming in, Israelites are still over there, Philistines are coming in. Everyone's moving closer and closer, but here it kind of gets worse. The Philistines had a really good strategy because they said, well, if we fight them, they still have weapons, so let's just take away all of their blacksmiths so that no one can fight with weapons. So as they're moving in and moving in, the territories that they're taking, they're taking more and more weapons, and they're taking the blacksmiths. So now Israel's blacksmiths are working for the Philistines. They're no longer making swords for them. And the Philistines took the place of any kind of workers or, or spears. So the, so the passage tells us the Israelites came in, and they're looking for people to sharpen anything that they had. And who are they sharpening them from? The Philistines. So it's not good. It's not a good situation. That, that was probably not a very good sharpening job when you know that you're building something for the enemy. But we have this scene set and painted for us of the Philistines closing in and 600 men standing with axes, with sickles, with farm materials as their only defense. And the only two people who have weapons are Saul and his son, Jonathan. But now let's see what happens in verse 1 and 2, where it says this, That same day Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. So, of all of the people, of all of the people who are looking at their given situation, there's only one who is not intimidated by their external circumstances. There's only one who is not looking at the situation and saying all is lost and hopeless. Jonathan Jonathan is the one who moves forward, and we're going to see why in just a moment. But first, I, want to do, I do want to describe, just because of the background of this, within this first part, there's a lot of background imagery and a lot of background names that are being told. And verse 3, we hear of Ahijah. Ahijah was Ichabod's nephew. And I don't know if you remember Ichabod, but that name should always come off as like, not the name that equals good. Ichabod is the name that just, Ichabod equals bad. Ichabod equals bad. That's all I want you to remember from that. Ichabod is the guy who was the glory has departed. That's what his name means. And it's a very sad moment in, in our book, is that Ichabod was the guy. And now this is Ichabod's nephew. And that's important for us to keep in our minds as, we're, as this story is playing because the question that I want you to ask is, does Saul's company have any influence over his decisions? Does influence matter? That's something just to hold on to as you're reading through this, this passage. But two words can describe Saul's action in this moment, as, as this scene has been set before you, the two words are avoidant procrastination. 
Saul is avoiding all of his responsibilities and he's procrastinating on what to do with them. That moment may look and give the allure of strategy and spiritual discernment, but the reason why the pomegranate tree is in there is because it wants you to see this is a really bad circumstance and he's just showering himself with spirit, luxurious spirituality. He's got everybody that he needs right there, but he's going to enjoy the moment where he comes. He's going to avoid things and just kind of procrastinate on them. And if you were to ask him, what would he say? He'd say, I'm waiting on the Lord to give me something. But we know that that is not the case. He's simply avoiding his responsibilities and procrastinating, surrounding himself with others who won't challenge his actions or, but support him. So while Saul is away from danger, while Saul is there, Jonathan is going towards it. And now we're really introduced to a wonderful character. Jonathan is this incredible character that we find in this book. And we can define Jonathan in two words, faithful confidence. Faithful confidence. And what does that mean? Verse 6 through 10, it says that Jonathan said to his attendant, he said, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And his armor-bearer responded to him, do what is in your heart. You choose. I'm right here with you, whatever you decide. And as they're, growing, as they're going and they're looking at the scene, Jonathan sees an area of strategy where he says, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. And if they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. This will be our sign. So despite all odds, despite all odds, Jonathan's confidence lay securely not in his, his father's leadership, not in the external circumstances, not in his troops' lack of resources and his personal own resources, not in his own sense of confidence that he's going to approach this in his way and he's going to do it in these things, only in, securely on God acting on his behalf. And it's all reflected in this one word in verse 6, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord that is a phrase I just want us to meditate on this morning because that is, that is awesome. Perhaps the Lord. It's as if he's saying God can do a mighty thing with little resources or none at all. And he may be glad to do it, but it is ultimately his will, not mine. My efforts are in your hands. Perhaps the Lord will use this moment to move in ways that are beyond my understanding. He may or he may not. But I don't know unless I obey in this small way. If I feel the prompting of faith right now, I'm going to be moving towards it. Perhaps the Lord. Perhaps the Lord. And then he goes on to say, nothing, nothing can stop the Lord. Nothing can stop him. And this is reflected all throughout the scriptures in Genesis 18, verse 14. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Job 42, verse 2. I know you can do anything and no plans of yours can be thwarted. This, friends, is, is faithful confidence. This is faithful confidence, knowing God has the power to do all things, but submitting to his will ultimately. 
knowing that the results are not ours to make, but knowing that we walk with a very great, very powerful God who is, willing, who is able to do abundantly more than we can imagine. Despite what Super Soul Sunday says, faith is not, faith is not a dictation to God as if the Lord is our errand boy while we sit off in the distance. Faith is the recognition that we don't have all the information, but our confidence comes from living in the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. Amen, church? Knowing God acts, knowing that he moves, he gives grace to us, strengthens us in our weakness, and moves us into his will. Perhaps the Lord will bring us into what he is doing, but my faith is not going to be shaken if he doesn't because I know the character of my God. We submit and we follow in obedience in the movements of the Spirit. And that is what is reflected when we look at that moment. Perhaps the Lord, we see that not only in the Old Testament, we see it saturated through the scriptures, and we ultimately see it played out perfectly in Christ himself. That's Christ-like obedience as it points to faith in Jesus. When Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And do you remember this moment? This is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he holds out what's about to happen before him, and he says, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Perhaps the Lord, you can do anything. Perhaps the Lord, and I think, friends, that this is a f- completely countercultural. Faith is countercultural. When, our, when we step in confidence in our faith, when we walk with our God, when we submit to his will, when we follow in our obedience, you just have to know that the world is not going to fully understand what it is that you're doing. I remember there was a time when I was talking to a family member of mine who's, who's not a believer, and I was sitting there, and Amy and I were talking about how we were kind of handling this stressful family situation. And we kept on doing it, and it had taken discernment. It was take, it, I mean, there was, there was prayers involved. It was hard because Amy and I, as we're witnessing to our family, there's rejection, there's rejection that comes with that. There are people who, are going, who look at us, who look at me, and who would say, no, I'm not into whatever faith you have. And that was happening. And so my family member was asking, she was like, well, you know, aren't you going to like get them back and prove them wrong? You know, don't you have like, aren't you getting like a degree or something? Like, go, you know, destroy them with your arguments or something, you know? And, and I remember saying, no, that, no, that's not how faith, that's not how it works. <laughs> and, and I remember there being a point in this conversation where she just goes, well, I just don't get it. I just don't understand I don't understand you and your Christians. And I remember that's the moment where I thought confident faith can be really difficult to understand to the outside world. Nevertheless, we, God calls us to walk faithfully, to walk humbly, to walk with him. And we also know that in those moments, those movements of faith that we're walking in day in and day out, though some may not understand, others are captured. Others are captured by the grace and the imagination and their faith through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to speak into them. And so there's this tremendous possibility of when we are faithfully confident walking with God. But Perhaps the Lord. This, this is the faith that Saul lacked. And it becomes more and more evident as this 
story continues. Because in the big picture, Jonathan's steps of faith may have been, in the grand history of things, were small. In the grand history of Israel, they were small steps of faith. But one small act of obedience plus a great God equals dramatic results. Faithful confidence prompts resilient courage. Prompts resilient courage. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they anticipate with faith that if the garrison says, come on up, then God will have brought defeat. So let's read on in verse 12 through 15. It says, the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer. What'd they say? Come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. Sounds mean and it was intended to be. That's not, and we'll teach you a lesson about mathematics. No, it's like, we want to kill you. Right? But what does Jonathan say? Follow me. He told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. I love that. I love the confidence. I love the confidence that he has in that. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down, and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. And in that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and in the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. So I want to give you just a little bit more of this picture of, um, of verse 13. He climbed up using his hands and feet. So this picture is again to show just all of the the not good, weak moments and areas and situation that Jonathan and his armor bearer find themselves in. So the names of the cliffs are in, in this passage. It's Bozes, which means gleaming and slippery. That's one side. And then the other side is Senna, which means jagged and, and spiky and sharp. So you choose, Jonathan. Which side do you want to go up? You can either go up the El Capitan side or you can go up another side of a mountain I can't think of right now, but nevertheless, it's still dramatic, right? <laughs> There's this narrow little gateway and that's what they have to choose from. Does that hinder him at all? Not a chance. Not a chance because all he needed to hear was one phrase. Come on up. He knew what was deeper in there. He knew what was going on. And he knew that God was about to do something abundantly more than he could even imagine. And so he chose and he climbs up with his hands and his feet. Now, I, got, I just, just, picture, just picture that. He's walking up a mountain. Now, it's a straight cliff. The soldiers are looking down at them with weapons. Remember, Jonathan, I don't know what's worse. Jonathan is climbing up first with no weapons. And his armor bearer, at least, is holding weapons, and he's behind him, but he's got the weight of the weapons that they have to climb up. So you just have this, like, Frodo and Sam moment of just climbing up this hill, and everyone's watching them, making fun of them, saying, as soon as you get up here, we're going to kill you. That just doesn't seem like a, a very successful start to everything, but obviously he has more in in mind because Jonathan comes up and there is victory. And this is just one example. This is just one example of how stepping out in courageous faith, stepping out in courageous faith is an el a building, a building of resiliency in our courage as believers. While many of us may not climb, may not climb a cliffside to fight an army, we still have battles to fight. And we are still looking at unlikely circumstances. We look at circumstances that evaluate our weakness, 
but in faithful confidence we can walk forward in them and every step of obedience builds further resiliency in our courage. And it looks different to all of us. And this is the beauty of the Gospels. This is the beauty of the Bible is that God does not define this moment of one soldier climbing up a cliffside with no weapons, with the weapons behind, um, holding on his armor bearer, as courageous. He also calls Paul being beaten, being bloodied and broken bones in a cellar. In Acts 21, Paul is sitting in a cell after just being beaten to a pulp by the mob in Rome And the Lord comes to him and says, have courage. Courage is in the man climbing the cliffside, and it's also in the disciple faithfully preaching the gospel, sitting in a cell. Jesus gives resilient courage to both. Courage is also found in a young disciple a young believer facing peer pressure at school. Jesus says, have courage to stand strong in your faith. Jesus gives courage to those who are fighting cancer. Jesus gives courage to the unemployed person who is looking for work and every morning stepping out and looking for that next job, turning in that next application, that next application. There is a resiliency of courage that is growing in that faithful confidence. Jesus gives confidence and courage to single parents who are raising children all on their own. Jesus gives courage to the slew of families who have been had to readjust their educational settings of now doing homeschooling at home. And every lesson and every, every day that that happens, there is a resiliency of courage when our confidence is in God being able to do abundantly more than we can imagine in our small steps of obedience. Jesus says there's courage in that. So have it. Have courage. Our Day-to-day lives may not look like Jonathan's right now, but the courage and the confidence that we have are the same as Jonathan's. Confident faith prompts resilient courage no matter the magnitude of the content, of the context. But let's go back and see what Saul's doing. What's Saul doing? Verses 18 and 19. He looks at the field. He looks at what's happening. So he says to Ahijah, bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at that time. But Saul 19, this is a part that I want to I, I focus your attention on. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So whatever he's doing is not happening over there. So he says, stop what you're doing. Okay. Let's think about that for a second. Stop what you're doing. He told Aijah to stop the sacrifice midway. Now, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I have not found in the Old Testament ever a time someone stopped a sacrifice halfway because the answers, it lay, they, they decided not to do that anymore. Like, no one stops halfway. People can abuse the sacrifice. People can do it wrong. People cannot do it at all. But no one stops halfway. From what I've read, I think Saul is, might be the first to ever do that. And I just want you to know to stop what you're doing, that's the last phrase. That's a big deal. And it really shows, it's a visual of Saul's faith. Of Saul's faith. What that communicates to the soldiers and to the people when he says, ah, I don't need this anymore. You can stop this halfway. What does it show? One, 
that God is distant. But when I need him, I can call on him. And he comes to me. Because I have all of the right things. Right? The priest is wearing the ephod. I have the ark of God. I have all of these things. So when I call on him, he'll come. Two, strength and success are marks of spirituality. The priest and the ark, not weaknesses. And three, God is not great. God is not great when the results that I want are already happening. I don't need him anymore. That's what that meant when he said, stop what you're doing. That's what that meant. Superficial spirituality. But before we look at that and we separate ourselves from that, we also have to recognize the same dangers that we have in doing, in living out a superficial spirituality because it's dangerous, because it can happen so easily. And this is what I mean by that. Superficiality may not look like us performing sacrifices and stopping halfway, but it does look the same when you're praying only when you need an answer or when you want something. When you're praying for God to give you things, only when you need them. But when things are going good, you're not praying at all. It is a faith of half-hearted intentions for the purpose of getting our way. And that not, it doesn't only, it doesn't only just undermine God's grace, but it's also an attempt, friends, to leverage ourselves into a place of our own righteousness. It's an attempt to leverage us to a place of righteousness and good standing on our own. And that's the danger because doing acts and calling on God like he's distant, like he's not really here, like he's not intimately a part of our lives, but we can just call on him for whatever we need. We are putting, leveraging ourselves to try to be the righteousness for us and be in our good standing. And that will not work to a great and mighty God who is holy. And here is the beauty of the gospel is that in weakness, the Holy Spirit equips. It's not the way you say the prayer that matters. It's not your eloquent speech. It's not your right posture. It's not what you're wearing. It's not what you're doing. It's the fact that you're coming to Jesus with a genuine heart, and he says, that is enough. He says, that is enough. You don't need to have everything to be with me. It is enough that you say, I need you. Whatever that looks like. That's why the faith of a child is so beautiful. The faith of a child is so beautiful because it's so genuine in expressing what I have and what I don't have. And I'm okay with it. And Jesus says, have that. A childlike faith is enough. Come before me. See that in your weaknesses I am strong. The beauty of the gospel is that in our weakness, the Holy Spirit equips us. Jesus lifts us into his righteousness. Jesus took on our sin so that we would never have to bring our own righteousness before God, but that we can step into his, that we are living in his, into his work in his righteousness, and it's abundantly more than we could ever have imagined. Not only does God infuse courage into the faith of Jonathan, but he makes it abundantly clear to everyone present that this wasn't Jonathan's strategic move. This wasn't, this wasn't Jonathan and his armor bearer. This was God. God was at work. And if you were mildly confused about that, he turned the Philistines to attack one another. 
He turned the Philistines to attack one another out of sheer confusion. And then he sends this, this earthquake that shakes everyone. So now everyone really knows God is here. The God of Israel who has gone before them so many times in the past is doing it again. Watch out. Nothing's going to stop him and he needs no resources to accomplish his plan, but invites his children into his plan. And their small acts of obedience of his great and mighty works produce dramatic results. Small act of obedience plus a great God equals dramatic results. But then we go on and we see verse 20 through 23 and we see how Israel responds to their God at work. And we come to this idea of an imagination. I want, we're coming back to this idea of an imagination captured by the movement of faith in another. And this is what I call compelling camaraderie. So in verse 20, it says, Saul and his troops were with him, assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were, fighting against each other in great confusion. And there were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines. So these were the, these were the, the soldiers who surrendered and just joined whatever team was, was better. And they joined the, uh, but even they, those ones, joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who, who had been in hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. The faithful confidence of God's people, infused with resilient courage, captured the imaginations of others. Others began to see the movement of the Lord. And this is what I call the compelling camaraderie. Who would have thought, who would have thought that Jonathan's small act of obedience was God's starting point of bringing, not just bringing victory, but of bringing his people back together? That's incredible. No one could have imagined that. But when it's happening, it's captivating, and people want to move in that same direction. Perhaps the Lord. Jonathan's small act of obedience was a starting point. He was not... God had done abundantly more than he could imagine, and that's the beauty of an imagination captured by the movement of of faith. Maybe it looks like that in this story, but to us, friends, even small acts of obedience like that, even small movements of, of an imagination captured by movements of faith have tremendous, tremendous power in the kingdom of God for everyone involved. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. He says, But to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected and weakness. Why do I say that now? Because that is what the imagination has captured. That's the truth of the gospel that people see and that people want to join in walking with. And I can think about my own life, friends, and I can think about, I'm brought back to, actually, when I first came to this church when I met the Hallows. I just want to show you that when Andrew and I met, when Andrew and I first met, it was just through a mutual friend. And this is a crazy thing. Andrew called me on the phone, and he didn't know me. We don't really do that anymore. We don't, like, call strangers anymore, right? But we had a mutual friend, and Andrew picked up the phone and called me, and I answered, and we met for coffee at Cafe Ladros in Fremont. And just a little conversation, just the conversation was enough to, for me to want to, to join the church. And though we weren't saying these words, my wife and I, we were looking for a new church home. We had just come from a church plant. We loved it. We wanted to serve again in Seattle. Andrew and the church planning team 
they had come. And though it may not have been the phrase that we would have said, it was in our minds, and it was this, perhaps the Lord. For some, perhaps the Lord's going to do something great. Perhaps the Lord's going to bring us into a church family. Perhaps the Lord. And I remember walking in into our first gathering, and it was the beginning of summer. It was super hot. Fremont Baptist. It was the church in Fremont that we first met in. And I'm going to be honest, that's like one of the... I, didn't, I wasn't born in church, so, the, so I wasn't raised in the church. So seeing kind of traditional churches were a little bit foreign. And when I came in, the first people that, that said hi to me was Marianne and Matt Hudson. So I come into this like traditional it's hot summer, even there's like less than 20 people there. These two, these two people from Alabama are greeting me, and I'm like, where am I right now? What, what is happening here? This is like not Fremont at all. This is, this is a different place. But as I'm thinking, this place sure is capturing my attention. This is, this is stirring something within, and Amy and I, I remember leaving and we just remember walking out and saying, whatever they're doing, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. I don't know what it is. I can't describe it yet. Perhaps the Lord. It wasn't, it wasn't the decorations. It wasn't the southern accents, though they're great. It wasn't the aesthetics. It was a, it was a small group of people who had been captured by something more. God was doing more. And through one small step, one small act of obedience after another, one small phone call, one invitation, one friendly hello, one step out of the comfort zone, plus a great God equal dramatic results in my life. In my life, that's what I get to see from that. Those little moments of Melissa Perry watching Amy and I's, our firstborn Gabe, when we were parents who were completely overwhelmed so that she could give us a date night. Small little promptings like that captured our, captured our faith and renewed us in our faith as we were learning how to be parents for the first time sitting under the word, hearing the gospel, when I so desperately needed it, when I was torn in between direction, life directions of where to go, was the stability that I needed. A community and walking with college students and ministering to them as really best as I could, even though I had no idea because I hadn't gone to college and I didn't quite know their problems. But I was still with them. I was still with them as best as I could, walking in small acts of obedience. Perhaps the Lord, perhaps the Lord will use this moment now as we look back at the nine years that our church has had of small moments and small acts of obedience with a great God to say, the Lord is wonderful. Look what he's doing in the city, not only in our church, but look what he's doing in the Seattle area. He is doing abundantly more than any of us could have imagined. And he's continuing to do so. He's continuing to do so. No matter our weaknesses or our circumstances, disciples living by faith, and walking in obedience is an expression of Christ-likeness. As simple, as simple as they are, never underestimate, never underestimate the small acts that you do in the day-to-day -day life. 1 Corinthians 13 through 4, 13 verse 4 says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we live with him by God's power. In our weakness, we experience 
Jesus' power and we get to see just a fraction of the magnitude of a great God. Just a, just a little bit of it. We get to see just how great our God is. Perhaps every act of obedience, no matter how small, is an expression of faithful confidence in Jesus. Perhaps every step taken in courage is growth toward resiliency, no matter how small. Perhaps every imagination that is captured by the movement of faith compels others to join in the camaraderie and walk in that same movement of faith. Perhaps the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a great God. You are a great and mighty God who does abundantly more than we can ever imagine. And yet you call us to walk with you. You come to us in our weakness. You raise us up in your likeness and bring us forth through grace so that we can stand confident. We can stand confident. We can, we can be courageous. Lord, I pray that you would help us grow resilient in our courage. I pray that our, our confidence would not be in anything other than the grace that you bring us into. And I pray, God, for camaraderie. Lord, in everything that's gone on this past year, with the attacks of division in the church, Lord, what we need now is a compelling camaraderie for imaginations to be captured by faith. For imaginations to be captured by your grace. And that we would look out at the church, we would look at each other, and we would see small acts of obedience, as small as they are, steps forward in faith. A growing courage. We love you and we thank you for all that you do in our lives. For climbing the, the cliff sides, the tremendous difficulties of life to the small everyday challenges. We thank you that you are here, that you are not distant. We thank you that you are strong, that we don't need to rely on our own successes or our own resources. And we thank you that you are great. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.